I'm not governed by the fear of what other people say. You've got to open your heart. Well, number one, he's one of the elite offensive players in the game. What is leadership like in today's football world? Hello there. We are back after a two-week hiatus. This is Mike Sealski uh, from the Philadelphia Inquirer, joined by David Murphy from the Daily News, our intrepid producer, Jonathan Tannenwald, because all producers are intrepid. Uh, welcome to another Philly sports talk show. Uh, it's Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday morning. Former Eagles coach Buddy Ryan died at age 82. I'm saying died. Everybody says passed away nowadays. But we're journalists. We say things as they are. He died. Um, Murph. You remember anything about growing up as an Eagles fan about Buddy Ryan? I think Buddy Ryan was right when I first start remembering football. I was the first football game that I remember was St. Louis, uh, well, Los Angeles, I guess it was at the time, and is again uh, beating the Eagles in a playoff game. game, And I just remember sitting in the living room. And my father's there, and I remember hearing, I think it was John Madden say, it looks like the Eagles never even got off the bus today. (laughs) And it was an appropriate introduction to life as a sports fan, and I'm not quite sure why that got the football bug going in me, but uh, I think it was followed up the following year by the game in which... They lost fans, to the Redskins. Well, I think it it was followed up by... Maybe it was the same year when when they threw ice at at the Cowboys. Uh, I think it was earlier. It might have been that year where... um, that's one of the all-time great Philadelphia sports stories where, you know, at the time, I believe, former district attorney, eventual mayor, and eventual, eventual, eventual mayor of Philadelphia. Daily News columnist. Eventual Daily News columnist. Eventual exactly. Daily News columnist, columnist, eventual governor of Pennsylvania, Ed Rendell, bet an Eagles fan that he couldn't reach the field with a snowball. Um, and was that, that, that whole thing was Ed Rendell's fault? I'd never heard that. Yeah. What's interesting about it, though, too, is that Steve Lopez, the Inquirer main news columnist at the time, found out about it, called Rendell, and Rendell denied it to him over the phone. And then, within five minutes, called him back and said, yeah, actually, I did it, because you're going to find out that I did it anyway, so I might as well fess up to it. How about, like, imagine- I would have thought he, he would have said, I'm not a wussy. <laughs> Probably, you know, I'm not, I'm not a wuss. I, you know, I, I tried to hit the guy with the snowball. It didn't work. Um, I was talking with Les Bowen, who covers the Eagles for us for the Daily News and Philly.com uh, before the show. And he thought I'm, he made what I thought was a great point about Buddy Ryan, which is that Buddy Ryan's hiring marked the emergence of the Eagles as the number one, clearly the number one fran- sports franchise in Philadelphia. Before he arrived, the Eagles had been, you know, Marion Campbell had been their head coach. They were, you know, more than five years removed from the Super Bowl berth under Vermeil. They weren't good. They were boring, you know. They couldn't sell at games. Their games were blacked out all the time on TV back when the NFL actually blacked out games if you didn't sell enough tickets. And then Buddy came along and was kind of the consummate Philadelphia football coach. Like, talked a great game, didn't always back it up, <laughs> uh, never won a playoff game, obviously, but, you know, said outrageous things, was honest, could be cruel and cutting to his players. And not only that, his arrival coincided with the rise of talk radio, both in Philadelphia and around the country, and it coincided with really the NFL kind of rising to become the the the, the mammoth thing that it's since become, the behemoth, um, because the NFC East was great back then with the Giants and LT and the Redskins winning all the Super Bowls and eventually the Cowboys getting great, 
and it was a heck of a time. And so people look back at that time and think Buddy Ryan, just, you know, great, perfect Philadelphia kind of coach. Because Even though at the time, the city was kind of divided about he, him. He, he appealed to Ben. I think we can safely say that. And in the way, in the way that people such as what is, for my money, the greatest non-professional division, Philadelphia sports Twitter account, fake WIP caller, you know, constantly yeah. exploits, makes fun of, so forth. There was a certain ethos that he appealed to, and it didn't matter that he didn't win in the playoffs because he was representative of that kind of Philadelphia. Yeah, and, and it's what's funny about it is he was a Korean War veteran from Oklahoma who became this guy who uh, so many people identified with and loved. Like, there was no gray with him. If you liked Buddy Ryan, you loved him no matter what. And that went for his players. That went for fans. Um, you know, dating back to when he was coaching the Bears and the Jets and the Vikings and, and all that. Um, but if you didn't like him, you really didn't like him. Uh, same kind of thing. You know, ask Ron, shoot Ron Jaworski up with sodium pentothal sometime and ask him about Buddy Ryan. The two of them hated each other. Um, so, you know, just a perfect kind of lightning rod for what, and, and we'll never see that kind of uh, personality around here again. The, you know, the teams wouldn't allow it. The medium... The, the media wouldn't allow it in a way. Um, he's just, he was so open and so brash that y- you couldn't imagine, I, I just, I couldn't imagine anybody like that now. I don't know, it's, Murph, I don't know how I, you... I could, actually. Who? Strange as this is going to sound, and he wasn't as, he wasn't as brash, per se, as Buddy Ryan. But Peter LaViolette was no slouch. Oh, God, Peter LaViolette, stop. Stop. What? What? <laughs> Peter Laviolette coached here five minutes and took one team to a Stanley Cup Finals. It wasn't. It, it's not the same thing. It's not the same. thing. You don't thing. think, in terms of temperament, he was no, a pretty fiery guy. No, no, it's not about being fiery. It's about it's about tapping into the collective thinking and feeling of the city's psyche from a sports standpoint. And Buddy Ryan hit that. He hit that vein. Like the minute he got here, he said, "You got you now. You got a winner in town, you know." And then went out and went five, ten, and one in his first year, you know. I mean, that's that's all you need to know about Buddy Ryan is that. Now that that part I agree with, but it was and, the, think- and it was the Eagles, and it was the kind of team that he built, and it was the setting with Veterans Stadium, and the fact that it was the worst stadium in the history of stadiums, and the body bag game, and. You know, what the heck? Just We got Randall Cunningham. Just give me five big plays, Randall. And who cares about the running backs? Who cares about the offensive line? We're, we're going to be... If you get a chance, if you, you probably already have, read Rich Hoffman's column today yeah. on Philly.com, which distills it down. Buddy Ryan was an us-versus-them guy. And in some cases, the them was on his own team, like the offense. The offense was a them to Buddy Ryan, which explains a lot about how you know his record as a head coach. I don't know, Mur- Murph. What do you? Yeah, think? I mean, I think I'm I, I think I think that's what this show's about. I think Buddy Ryan is the reason why people have a certain impression of Philadelphia sports fans right now. I think that he kind of encapsulates yes. the id of the Philadelphia sports fan, and I think it started. You know, I mentioned the, the ice game, which I I just looked at was 1989. A few okay. so the same that year, was yeah. the apparently that was the birth of my consciousness, <laughs> December 1989, because those are the two games I remember. Um, and then from that point on, I was a, a huge, uh, football huge, fan. huge, huge football fan. And I, and I think right around that year was I, the first college basketball game I remember is Duke UNLV when Duke won the title. 
Yeah, so I think that was right around too. So maybe I just achieved consciousness that year. You might be. That might be it. That was the birth. That was the birth of of sentient Dave Murphy. (laughs) It's funny thing. I I probably all right. So like Peter Laviolette. I mean, come on. Buddy Ryan put a bounty on a kicker. Right. Like think about that. He he. That's that's nuts. That's nuts. Nobody would ever do that now. They get. They got. They wouldn't get caught. Well, Roger Goodell tried to have Greg Williams getting thrown out of the league. I was say, for it happened you know, in New Orleans. For yeah, some, with, for for far less. With his, far, with, but with Buddy Ryan's kid, no less. Yeah, for something far more inno- innocuous the, the, than that. The funny thing to me is that one of the first football games I really remember watching on TV was what might well have been Buddy Ryan's last one. The one against the Redskins in the yeah. playoffs. Yes, it was. And the next year, Washington went on and won the Super Bowl. Yes, they did. And it, it's... I I think... You talk about Buddy Ryan playing to sort of the id of the Philadelphia sports fan. Ed Snyder might be the better analogy, although he didn't coach. It was no... Why did, stop... Yeah. I, think, I think that psyche has changed demonstrably. I don't. <laughs> I don't think it's changed I demonstrably. Think, I don't think it's changed. No, I, I don't think it's changed much at all. I think, and I have the, and I'm sure Murph does too. We have the email to prove it. <laughs> like, you know, the reaction that people have to, it might be, it might be a little bit smaller, but Philadelphia, in a lot of ways, is its own self-contained entity. It's not like, you know, you have to remind people about national trends in sports around here i feel like i don't know maybe you might feel differently murph like you know like we tend to look yeah, we at we talked about we've, yeah we've talked about we, this. we tend to look it's a very parochial city yeah but but and and because it is like we tend to know our our own history really well but sometimes we miss like the broader context that we're living in right now and and people look past that because they're just so laser focused on you know, what's happening within the city. And, you know, I think a lot of that is derived from what Buddy did. Like, Buddy Buddy was the right guy in the right town at the right time to kind of express what the, the town, that the sports town that Philadelphia has kind of always wanted to be, in a way. Like, you know, we're going to talk trash, and that's just the way it is. And if you don't like it, for you know, who cares? And then you never fulfill the trash, the, right. the, the promise of the that's, trash talk. You yeah. know, I, mean, I, I realize I'm not from here, but in the years that I have lived here, I feel like I've seen an emergence of not the entire Philadelphia sports fan base, but a class of Philadelphia sports fan that is big enough now that thinks in different ways. And I look at how the fans' judgment of the Phillies has evolved since 1993 to now. I look at how that group of people rallied around Sam Hinkie in a way that yeah, it's young. The people. Buddy Ryan demographic, yeah, but wanted him thrown in a trash can and shut and dumped in the <laughs> Delaware. You know, yeah, but that th- those, as Murph said, those are younger people who are growing up, you know, who are already immersed in the different way of thinking about sports that is happening across the country. You but, know, Buddy more- Ryan, Buddy Ryan, and his fans would have voted for the Brexit, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's well, that's funny. One of the guys who, friend of mine who listens to the show thought it was no coincidence that Buddy Ryan and Ronald Reagan were around at the same time. In what? terms of the kinds of people that they appealed <laughs> what? to. What? <laughs> what are you talking They were around at the no, same no. time because they were no, alive no, no. at the same right. time. You, you got it. You got it. You got it. You got to explain this. Go ahead. That explain they, this. They're, the ways that they made people... Uh, this is his opinion. 
But the ways that they made people feel good about themselves were similar to each other. The how they presented, things are going to be great, things are going to be all right. And Buddy Ryan was not things are going to be great. Buddy Ryan was, I'm going to punch you in the face, <laughs> and I'm going to get people who punch you in the face. That's, that's what said he said. We're wa- going to be a winner. I, I think your friend needs to reevaluate his connections between politics and sports. Okay. But keep listening to the podcast. Yeah, but continue to listen, friend. Um, you know, <laughs> no, no. Buddy Ryan also said it's morning in America, it's will, morning in Philadelphia. Like, I will uh, say this. Go ahead. Yeah, Buddy Ryan would have said it's morning in America. Where's the whiskey? Yeah. <laughs> Where's the moonshine? I think that, to be honest with you, I think that the the this is we're we're way off way off way off kilter here but i will say this i would not have laughed you out of the room if you had said if you had attempted to draw a connection between buddy ryan and donald trump Trump. a little bit yeah i think that's a little bit closer to what your friend might be trying to get at which is i think that and 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 here it is the thing i think and again i i we're not going to get into politics here because it's just it's it's fraught never with, yeah, yeah it's never worth it yeah. <laughs> right but i i do think to, to go on a little quick media critique here I, th- I do think there's more the coverage of trump has been very two-dimensional and narrative driven and, and very shallow the same way the coverage of the brexit has a bit um you know and i think that in a sense to kind of get at what you were talking about it all a lot of it comes from the same type of working class angst it's not necessarily Every, I mean, it's the economy, stupid. Mm-hmm. Everything is economic, you know, like big, you know, bigotry is economic to me. You know, I think that in the grand scheme of things and, you know, these people, these people, the fact I, I, I get a little nervous when you portray anyone who votes for Donald Trump as, as a small, closed minded bigot who should just listen to what the elites think is good for the country. And I think the same thing with the Brexit where I, you know. From everything I've heard, I, I don't know that the Brexit is a good thing, and and it sounds like I mean when when every expert is is in you know unanimity about an outcome, I would tend to you know, but I think I, that I, I think what you're getting at think, is think, tribalism, right? I just but I think that it, it's it's more of a middle finger to the the status quo than it is saying than it is a rational choice. You know Absolutely. what I'm saying? Like yeah, I don't think I don't think people like I don't I don't think the tr- yeah, I don't even think Trump hates Mexicans or anything like that. I just think it's like this guy is tapping into something that we have not that that we have not been able to express that we've kept pen up. And I think in a certain way, Buddy Ryan did that with th- Eagles. I, I think that's totally fair. I think I think what Buddy Ryan did was he went out there and said, "I'm going to make this a football team that you can be proud of in the way that you want to be proud of them." That's different from Andy Reid saying that, and it's different from Chip Kelly saying that. In that. Reed and Kelly would have said, "We're going to be, we're going to make you proud of this team by being innovative on offense and you know winning games and putting up a lot of points and and being creative and innovative and that sort of thing." Buddy Ryan said, "You're going to be proud of this team because you're from Philadelphia and Philadelphians are blue collar people who hit people in the mouth and they're happy to be here. They are they are glad to live in Philadelphia and they're tired of people dumping on on them and that's what." I think Murph is that's a good point in that in that Trump is tapping into the same kind of thing. It's 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 not something that's endemic to just politics. It's more a sense of tribalism, however you define it, whether it's the United States or Philadelphia, you know, within that. Yeah, I think it comes down to honestly, I, like you, there's an argument to be made that the two the two basic forces in the universe are, you know, elite elitism and populism. You know, it's submission and 
what's the opposite of submission? Dominance. You know, and I think that when you look at Chip Kelly and Andy Reid, some of the reasons why, you know, people did, you know, and, and a lot of the, part of the problem is people, coaches in this town, athletes in, the, in this town faces that they're still kind of living in the echo of that Buddy Ryan era yes. Eagles team. You know, Andy Reid and football itself has become an institution. Like it, it's no longer the like populist sport of, you know, of people who went down to Franklin Field and drank beer and threw snowballs at Santa Claus. It's it's the mainstream. It's the it's, you know, Roger Goodell makes forty million dollars a year, and uh, you know, Andy Reid and Chip Kelly are very much a member of that ruling elitist class. In they view fo- in the yeah. football establishment. They, and they view themselves the problem with as, the football establishment, as heads of corporations. Yeah, yeah exactly. And the football establishment is takes a very um yeah it was very interesting yeah, buddy ryan i think also turned this town into a town that like lives and dies with press conferences i yes. mean yes i've never been around people a, a city and it like people from out of town find it so weird they're like dude why does this town like they watch the press conference every monday like and then like watch it like a game you know yeah. I, like chip kelly that was one of the big reasons why people hated him and and andy reed as well you yeah hear, you hear him talk about the press conferences and it, it's because they took a very elitist look we know what's good for you for the team and for the, by extension the fan base you know so we're not going to explain what we actually did well, out there I, I, do you know I what i'm do, saying i do i think that's part of it i think the bigger part is kind of the natural inferiority complex that people around here sports fans around here have and people i think philadelphians to a certain degree in general so that when Buddy Ryan gets up there and expresses what they're exactly. thinking, they they kind of puff their chest out and say, "Yeah, that's right, that's us." That he's saying what we think. Whereas when you know, and they like to be stroked as well. Right. They like they they like hearing. It, it, we we talked about this um, with respect to Carson Wentz and the letter that he the, the essay he wrote for the Players Tribune. His his agent wrote for the yeah. Players Tribune. <laughs> you know, and how growing up in North Dakota would make him tough and and here's what I did in North Dakota to be a quarterback and therefore I'll fit right in with Philadelphia. People like hearing that story whereas Sam Bradford must be a coward even though Sam Bradford did some things that were pretty tough too. I, I what I find he just doesn't talk it in the way that Carson fairness, Wentz apparently Carson Carson Wentz's ancestors no never mind. <laughs> I, I find this fascinating something that you you said a minute ago and I there are ways in which I agree with it and there are ways in which I don't which is that Chip Kelly was part of the football establishment because even though he was certainly holier than thou about a lot of things he sure rankled a lot of people in the football well, establishment. He was a progressive. He was a progressive in the establishment. Yeah, I mean, he was he was willing to do things within within the confines of a football field. He was willing to do things differently from the way everybody else did them. But broaden the confines to how he dealt with the fans of Philadelphia, and it was very similar to what a lot of coaches do. You know that it was very similar to what Bill Belichick would do kind of keeping you at a distance not letting you in you're not gonna you know the, the thing people i think sports fans in any city in any region but i think particularly in in big maybe northeastern cities new york boston philadelphia they want to feel like they're along for the ride that's what they want as much as they as much as we lament you know one championship in 33 years and all that stuff what people really want is they want the ride they that's why people remember the 2001 sixers which in comparison to other championship runs, like that wasn't a championship run. That was a championship slog. 
and they got to the final. They, they they needed four games to win the first round against the Pacers. They needed seven games to beat two mediocre teams in the Raptors and the Bucks. And then they got their doors blown off by the Lakers in the finals with one memorable victory. But people remember that because they remember the ride. They remember the two, ta- you know, such as they remember the 2010 Flyers. They remember them for down three games to none against the Bruins coming back and winning that series. They remember the 93 Phillies for that reason because it was such a fun summer. Day after night after night after night, these guys are finding new ways to win games. And yeah, Mitch, you know, Mitch Williams gives up the home run to Joe Carter, and everybody feels bad about that. But ask people about that now, and they remember the ride of '93. And Chip Kelly and Andy Reid didn't really let you into the ride. They were kind of like, "Yeah, you got to be this tall to get on, and you're not tall enough." But it, so when I say style, and this is part of the reason why, like the binary way in which everything is presented now on the news, it just doesn't work because Elon Musk. And Mark Zuckerberg are part of the establishment now, right? But but that's kind of like Chip, like they're, you know, like Elon Musk say is kind of like Chip Kelly in terms, like right down to like maybe being an alien, you know, mm-hmm. like he's, but he's he's part of the establishment. He's on the other side of the establishment from, uh, uh the head of GE. Yeah, the head of G- from Jack Welsh. Yeah, you know. Um, Okay, I so see I think there's saying. like okay. it's almost like a it's almost like a a tick a uh, you know a grid a, a four square grid rather than right a line you know where you have you know the establishment is divided into left and right and then the populists are just divided into left and right and I just think that Philadelphia has always been a very populous city mm-hmm. and populists hate more than anything when people act as if they're better than them um, or that they don't belong you know like there's that chip the whole you know proverbial chip on the shoulder and I think that. Chip Kelly especially uh, stru- rubbed people as arrogant right. in his press conferences and his answers. And, and Andy Reid did too for the same and, reason. And Andy Reid did too. And that's my point is they kind of have this like, um, like we're doing this, you know, we're just here so we don't get fined. You won't understand, you know, just sit back and watch us do what's good for you. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it comes back to the thing that you've talked about. We've talked about on this podcast before, like about, um, you know, it was something I forget. It was one of the talk show hosts in town talking about uh, the answers that a coach gave or an executive right. gave to his questions. Like I, I love the answers he gives. Like who cares about the answers he gives at, right. at some level? Just coach well. Like do the things you should, you ought to do to produce a winning team. Buddy, Buddy Ryan gave the best answers in the history of Philadelphia sports in a way. Um, and he just wasn't. He he he. Every step of the way. He was defiant. Took on, you know, took yeah. on the establishment. I mean, he, uh, you know, this he and Dicka clashed. You know, yeah. Um, he and Brain. So, the one the one anecdote that I read today was uh, I don't remember this, but it's it's pretty funny. During the year, the last year his of Buddy Ryan's uh, tenure here, the last year was five year contract. There was there was speculation throughout the time. Were you how old were you then? I was fifteen. Okay, so there there was. You know, speculation throughout the season that uh, clearly him and Brayman didn't get along, right. and Brayman, you know, uh, and at, at, for a time they were losing, and then they come back and make the playoffs, and and you know, Buddy was you know noticeably quiet early in the season when they were losing. All of a sudden they come back and they win, and he's like starts right. mouthing off again. And I guess the whole all season people would ask but, uh, Norman Brayman about Buddy Ryan's future, and he said, uh, "I'll and and he all the only thing he said was quote I'll evaluate that after the season," and then uh, apparently. Uh, apparently during one of the, the waning weeks of the season, week 16 or 17. Uh, so, every, you know, every time, you know, Buddy Ryan hears this, obviously I'll evaluate this after the season. I'll evaluate this season. Uh, so then after week 16, I guess 
a reporter asked Buddy Ryan at a press conference, you know, what do you think about your future here now that you made it? And he, and he says, I'll evaluate it after the season. Buddy Ryan says this. Yeah. You know, to, to kind of to, to just make thumb fun his of his nose yeah, at exactly. the owner. Yeah. And that, that, I think that is a very, I, I just think that's Philadelphia right there. I yeah, think that it, they're very, uh, not anti-establishment, but just, you they, know. They, 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 they're, there's something about a guy taking that posture. Yeah, they're chippy. They they want, like, a lot of Philadelphians would love to tell off their bosses if right. they haven't already done so. And Buddy Ryan was able to do it in the ultimate sport where the kind of person who would want to tell off his boss, you know, is right. paying attention to that yeah. and loving that sport. You know, um, I heard, the one I heard today that was great was um, that Buddy had a radio show like a lot of coaches do and did back then, he held it at a, a Ribbit restaurant, a rib place. And for the for those of you out there who remember Ribbit, um, and one day he gets a call from a fan who's complaining about a player on the team, Joe Smith. I don't remember who the player was, and Buddy says, "Well, you're not going to have to worry about that guy much longer. I'm going to cut him." Well, Buddy hadn't mentioned that before. Like he hadn't told any of the reporters or TV people or anybody who would covering the team. So all the people who cover the team hear him say this and go up to him the next day. Probably hadn't told the player either. Uh, so all the all the guys who cover the team go up to him the next day, buddy. You're gonna cut. You're gonna cut Joe Smith. Why didn't you tell us that? He said, "Well, you didn't ask." <laughs> like you know, and that was that was the time. That was Buddy. That and I, I do think Murph, you're right in that there are still many people out there who kind of long for that time, and that's that's what I mean by being along for the ride. They want to feel like the coach is letting them in, that the people are letting them in. That's why the Flyers, those fans that they have, people are so loyal to them. It is, you know, and, and I'm guilty of it too, like kind of rolling my eyes over Kate Smith, you know, the recorded version of Kate Smith joining Lauren Hart on God Bless America as if Lauren Hart needed help singing this, you know, this song. But Flyers fans love it. They they just, they can't get enough of it. And because and and the Flyers organization understands that that there's that nostalgia there's that that thread that you know will never be broken the connecting the 74 75 teams to the ones of today well I think and again it, you know not to get too theory of everything on this but like what we what you see angst wise out of sports fans in general it kind of mirrors what's happened in society with with you know kind of the elite pulling away or, or, you know, people feel, people feel like they've been separated from the things that they yes. used to enjoy. Like, yes. like for example, like it, you always hear, well, call, you can't even take anybody to a football game now. A family can't, a family of four cost you know, $3 million to go to a football game. Now I remember when, you know, we could, I sold programs at Franklin field or whatever. Right. I, you know, I take, for example, I mean, here's something that jumped out at me when, when buddy Ryan signed with the Eagles, he signed a five-year deal for this is what it was reported in, in the paper for $275,000 a year, which uh, was, I, I figured out was 11.7 times the median household income that year. And this year Rex is earning, Rex Ryan is earning $5.5 million per year, which is like 40 times the median, you know? Right. I mean, just look, I mean, essentially the median income inflation adjusted has not grown since 1986. Whereas the, you know, inflation adjusted income for a football coach has grown tenfold 20 yep. fold you know and it, i think that when you see and i think what, what comes with that is a very you know you know the the establishment likes 
you know, likes its money, likes its power. So it's, it's scared to say things anymore. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like Buddy Ryan was not scared to be there. He, he was just a normal guy who wanted, wanted to coach football and watch mm-hmm. people, you know, hit, watch guys hit players, you know? Right. Whereas now, I mean, these coaches, like, it doesn't, it's not worth their while to sacrifice paychecks. To, exactly. You know, it's, it's, Why would you say anything? Why would you put anything, your career at risk? I mean, because you, you stand to lose so much more. Uh, th- that's true. You know, I mean, I, that filters down to the players, too. There's a reason Chuck Bidnarik was called Concrete Charlie. Yeah, so I think when people look back at the Buddy Ryan years, and even, like, the Broad Street Bully years with such fondness, it's, yeah. it's that, like, you know... They were one of us. Yeah, we, and they were more yeah, so. Like, and they I mean, were. Rich, you talked to Rich about it when, when he was, you know, 25 covering the Eagles during, during the Buddy years. You know, like, guys, you know, you know, guys on the team lived in the same apartment complex right. as him. You know, like, he, he would, you know, see them on the way to take out his trash. And that's just unheard of now, you know? And I think that that's kind of in society in general, there's kind of been this, this separation between, you know, everyone knows. I'm not going to turn into Bernie yeah, Sanders. Gonna, there are statistics about that that I think we should probably stay away from. Why? Because I mean, I, I, I don't like, want to get the political. It's not. Po- it's not political. It's. I mean, it's, it's that. I'm just saying. I think that explains. I just think that there's like a very. In the end, I think everything's a lot simpler than we make it. You know, I think that people, you know, have. People. All, everybody wants the same thing, and I think Buddy Ryan very much tapped in. Well, I want to. I want to ask yeah. you about that, and I, I being not from here, this is something that has. Fasc- are you from here? It fascinated me for a long time. When you say here, do you mean Earth or Philadelphia? <laughs> yes, I in fact mean Earth. Okay. Do Philadelphia sports fans want to be part of the establishment? They want to win, and they want somebody who wins in the way that they want him to win or want the team to win. Um, you know, I think that's part of the reason why. Uh, if you look at the 08 Phillies, for instance, the last team to have won anything, um, there's a reason Chase Utley was so beloved on that team and people were cooler towards, not that, not that they didn't love Jimmy Rollins or Ryan Howard, um, but the perception of Utley as the gamer, as the guy who played every day and was hard-nosed, et cetera, et cetera. And there's, there's other directions where we can take that sort of, um, that sort of yeah, feeling Jimmy, and perception. Jimmy acted too cool for school, and that's like the yeah, number one right. sin in in Philadelphia. And that's it, right. And Chip kind of had that too. That little the little you know too cool for school thing. And, I, and you know, like I think everyone wants to be part of the establishment. Everyone just wants like nobody wants to feel like people are downgrading on them. And I think right. that that's. You know, I think it's part of the reason, honestly. Why, Buddy Ryan did not do that. Like if you think about the the few teams that have won championships here, um, if you think about the 08 Phillies, you think about the nineteen eighty. The 1980 Phillies, you know, the the two Eagles teams that got to the Super Bowl. Part of the reason that the 83 Sixers aren't as beloved and remembered as well is that they were so freaking dominant. They were so good. That's one of the best single-season teams in NBA history. They just rolled through everybody. And that's not Philadelphia. Like, Philadelphia doesn't roll through anything, you know. Um, Even Villanova this year, like, you know, it kind of they kind of needed that Chris Jenkins shot at the end to add like to make it kind of Philadelphia-ish. Like, ah, oh, we have our moment because they're they were blowing everybody out of the building for most of that tournament. I mean, they mm-hmm. they destroyed um, Iowa in the second round. They destroyed Miami. They destroyed Oklahoma. You know, they won by five over Kansas. Like, and then all of a sudden, oh, okay, now it's a Philadelphia thing. Chris Jenkins hits the buzzer beater after Nova almost blows it. So um, that lends a little something extra to it. But Philadelphia doesn't do. 
like coast to the championship and greatness very well. They don't, they want the struggle. They want the journey. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know if they've, we've ever seen how they react. I mean, that Phillies team in 2010 and 2011, they, they rolled a lot of people. They did. They did. But, but they that, didn't they win, went, yes. you know. But, it, but, but again, all that's remembered now is that they didn't win the whole thing, you know. And so it's the misery, the misery index climbs because, you know, Juan Uribe hit a home run and, um, you know, Chris Carpenter threw a shutout in game five. So, um, and then never pitched again. Yeah, exactly. Um, sold a soul for the devil to, you know, to tear Ryan Howard's Achilles tendon, I guess. But it's it's kind of interesting now. I mean, to, to maybe switch gears a little bit when you think about Ben Simmons. Yes. And he's <laughs> he's about as un-Philadelphia, at least on the surface, as, as you can get right down to the, you know, Australian heritage. Yeah, I think that's, heritage. that's probably why people are a little skeptical of him. Like, like we talked about this a couple weeks back on the podcast about – um, a friend of mine raised the Kobe Bryant comparison that if Kobe had gone, you know, if, if Kobe were in the same situation that Simmons were in, had, was in at LSU, and, uh, you know, would there be as many doubts about Kobe as there are, there seem to be about Simmons? And I think LaSalle absolutely would have gone to the tournament that year, too. Probably. They, they probably would have. I, I don't, I mean, they were pretty bad back then. But, the but point, they had Donnie Carr, too, that year. Yeah, they, they did. But the point is that I don't think there would have been as many doubts because Kobe's emotion on the court was so apparent and so naked that everybody was seen like, oh, he wants to win. He's, it's burning within him to win. And people didn't see that as clearly with Simmons. Now, the hope is and you know, that it's going to show through now that he's got that year away from LSU. Kind of, It was perfunctory. He had to do it because those are the rules, which are ridiculous rules, but he had to do them. He had to follow them. Um, and that now he'll kind of be unleashed. But um, you know, the Sixers have to hope. I mean... There's an awful lot of pressure on this kid. A lot of pressure on this kid because they're gonna they're gonna move one of these two big guys, whether it's Okafor or Noel, um, and he's gonna be he and he and Embiid presumably are gonna be the center of everything. Well, and again, Embiid, I'll believe it when I see it. Right. But, right. I mean, you wrote. I think you wrote. I think it was you and not Ford. But but this is kind of like it's kind of Brett Brown's time to. Yep. To, to, yeah, that he's, was me. He is. You know, he's the one who's gotta who's gotta make this take this. This kid has the raw materials. You yeah. know. Uh, you know, in that sense, he's very much like Carson Wentz, although Simmons is clearly far more freakish of an athlete. I mean, I mean he's, he's got once-in-a-generation athleticism, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's, it's incumbent for upon... For his position. Right, and I think it's incumbent upon Brett, not just from a basketball standpoint, which you're 100% right about. Like, you need to figure this out. Like, you know, whether they trade Okafor or Noel or not, you're going to have kind of an unorthodox lineup it seems now there are reports i just checked on twitter mark stein from espn is reporting that the sixers are going to make a major play for harrison barnes um, which i see a lot of people very upset about yeah i mean they're going to try to it looks like they're going to try to turn him into something he's not which is you know a top three player on a team but anyway the point is you know what, what's the reported i mean what's the report that they're going to make a major move for him but is like okafor going to be involved or is no he's a, he's a free agent. agent he's a free agent that they're going to go oh really him. okay yeah, sign him and people are are not happy about this i think well the, the point is though my, my point is that yes brett's going to have to make that work from a basketball standpoint he's going to have to take these pieces such as they are and figure out a way to make it work on the court a little better than it has which i, I think there's an argument to be made that we really don't know very much of anything about Brett Brown as a basketball tactician over the last three years. It's very possible. I'm just, it's very possible this Sixers team might have been a little bit better 
that you know maybe it's possible they're not they weren't a 10 win team last year maybe they should have been like a 15 to 20 win team or a 20 to 25 win team we don't know like it's it's very easy to say oh well Brett Brown doesn't have, didn't have anything to work with and i think that's the other part of this which is you know Brett yeah was there as the public voice of the franchise like he was there after every game and he's explaining what's going on and you know you'd watch him after games and he's you know, covered in sweat and his shirt's all wrinkly and it's like watching, you know, an actor on, you know, in, in a Arthur Miller play or something like that. But he also had it easy in that everybody acknowledged the, the, the players on the roster were not his responsibility. That was Sam Hinkie. So he always had this kind of trap door where, hey, don't blame me. I didn't put this team together. Don't blame me. I'm not the one who just traded away Spencer Hawes and Thaddeus Young and and Evan Turner and anybody else who could play basketball reasonably well so that we could turn this into an 82-game tryout. Like, that's Sam. You're going to have to talk to Sam about that. That's gone now. Like, now we get to, like, you know, no matter how good they're going to be, the Sixers, I mean, the Colangelos are trying to put a respectable product on the floor now. I'm not, I don't necessarily think that's the best way to go to, like, speed through this thing, but... They're going to be better. They're going to be. They're going to have more talent. So we're going to find out what Brett Brown can do. I, I, I get the impression that he is a pretty good tactician, and one of the reasons why I say that is because a lot of what I've heard from people who watch a lot of Sixers games is they play their butts off. Yeah, but that's and, 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 that, that has and, nothing and, to do with and, tactics. That, but that they that they do look well organized, and for what they've got playing as good basketball as they're capable of with the crap players that they have. Sorry. That I I've everything I've heard about Brett Brown is that he actually is going to be a pretty good coach when he's got the time. I don't know. His number forget about tactics. His number one mission right now is to turn Ben Simmons into yes, a dominant basketball player. Yeah. Yes. Like that's I'm also, I mean, I'm skeptical generally about how much coaching does in the NBA anyway, but you're, I think you're right. But but this is more, to me, it's more still more of a development job for Brett Brown. Like, he's got to get, like, Ben Simmons has never had a top-level coach. You know, I mean. Right. He, he, he certainly he, didn't yeah. have it at LSU. No, no and, and I guarantee you didn't have it in high school. I mean, you know, I know, they, I know they won some state titles down there, but you just don't get it in high school. You know, and it's such a different game at the NBA, too, at the NBA level, too. And, and Simmons, frankly, like, you know, this is. I, I get nervous about judging guys by body language, but at the same time, it's body language, and and you know we have PhDs that study the the, the <laughs> discipline. So I mean, there's something to it. And the guy just like looks like a it's like dude, wake up, you know? Like mm. even at his press conference, everything's just like he just always looks like he's kind of leaning away, and he's kind of just you know what I'm saying? Like it's, yeah, and, and that's just how it looked at LSU to me he just always seemed very passive and very like like not assertive and like when you say when you look when you think of Kobe and Michael Jordan you know you think about that look in their eye and that 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 you know you said you could tell that they wanted it you know in LeBron you know you could tell you can tell that he wants it you know um at least you can now after that NBA final it's funny I I look I I, and Simmons that's the I just think he needs you know, and let's keep in mind the kid's 18, 19 years old. You know, I mean, he's, he's not even fully grown yet. I mean, he's not fully mature yet. I was, you know, you can turn from a wallflower at 18 to a, you know, a GQ model at 25, you know, yeah. it's, but so, so, but he need. I think he needs guidance. And I think that, 
you know, he's not going to. Do, I don't think he's at a level where you can just throw him out there and he's going to do it all no, by himself. No, I think he. And, I think someone needs to show him how you need to play in the NBA in addition to refining some of those skills, his jump shot yeah, in I'm, particular. I'm with you, but when you talk about body language and you talked earlier about that sort of ethos that is recognizable mm-hmm. to the fans, the media, the talk radio, mm-hmm. et cetera, here, in this draft pool, I'm not sure I saw that in any of the guys who were any good. I don't know. I, Brandon I, Ingram has it. Maybe he does. Um, yeah, you I mean, know he plays like it. Like I'm not talking. I'm not talking about watching the guy on the stage. I'm talking about watching him on the court. You know, like he, Brandon Ingram, gets the ball and goes to the rim. You know, and he he sweats and he and he grimaces and he you know he's a he's an aggressive type of basketball player. That's the whole reason why there was even a debate about you know. Who to take? Yeah. Who to take? I mean, he had that. He just has that, and well, he's made himself into a better player over the last three years. Yeah. Well, Simmons is kind of. He was a very good basketball player who had better coaching than Simmons. Did. I'm They'd, strictly talking about the body language. Yeah. I mean, that was. I I think Brandon Ingram definitively had it. What What's if, interesting about? I mean, you can get you can you can play this any like way you Tebow, want to play. But Tebow also had it. So yeah. You know. If Simmons if Simmons had played for Shashevsky, I bet we'd see some of the same maybe, body language. Maybe. I mean, the, the example I would use would be. Um, Michael, the, like oh, that's my point. Like, like do you need, he needs coaching, right? And and that then that goes to the question of whether Brett can do it. Like in Brett's in in Brett's first year, I wrote a column about his relationship with Michael Carter Williams, which he clearly was trying to extract that sort of intensity from Carter Williams, basically by saying like, look, I coached Tony Parker. Tony Parker was a soft kid when he got to this league, and he had to learn how to be. He le- had to learn how to play with an edge to be a successful and elite NBA point guard. And we needed him, you know, to be that player or we wouldn't have won championships. And here's what you have to do to be that guy. And Carter Williams never got it. He and his and may never get it. Like he, he certainly seems doesn't seem to be getting it in Milwaukee. And and Brett was open about that. Like there were times in that first year where he would take Carter Williams out of a game and put Tony Roten in a game. And Tony Roten, like you know, you want to talk about like the definition of like on court yeah. insanity. Yeah. That's Tony Roten. Like Tony Roten has it. <laughs> yeah, Tony Roten has. He's way does, too. He's way too sure of himself. Exactly. Um, but at least he had it. There was one game on the West Coast that the Sixers. I think it was in Phoenix their first year, where they won and Roten played the final five minutes of the game, and Carter Williams gave Brown some lip, gave Brett some lip as he came off the court and didn't go back in the game, and I talked with Brett about it afterwards. He's like, "Look, the kid's got to learn. Like he's got to learn that." You know, if you get an elbow in the solar plexus, you're a rookie. They ain't going to call it. And you can't complain about it. You can't whine about it. You got to deal with it and know it's coming the next time. And Carter Williams never got it. And I know that, you know, there's this perception out there that, oh, well, Sam Hankey traded Michael Carter Williams and Brett Brown was taken by surprise and this was, you know, beyond the pale that he would trade him. Like, I, I guarantee you there was a part of Brett Brown that said, yeah, I kind of get it. You know, he wasn't the player we thought he was going to be. He had a year and a half. He wasn't quite getting it. We'll take a shot on somebody and, and else. I will say at a certain point. But the, but yeah. the point is, he's going to have to, he has to tap that, tap into that with respect to Ben Simmons. And I think Murph's point is well taken, that it's an open question, given Simmons' background, as to whether he will be able to do that. Like Michael Carter-Williams came from a very kind of Tony Posh upbringing compared to, like, Kyle Lowry, you know, in North Philly. Like, nobody ever had to do that with Kyle Lowry. Kyle Lowry was going to, you know... No, he, but he Kyle came Lowry to, had to grow up. He had to grow up, but but he inherently came to kick all comers' asses. 
Michael Carter Williams does not. And we got to see yet if Brett's, Ben Simmons does. I, I would say a couple of things to that. One is, at a certain point, if a player refuses to be coached, I don't necessarily think it's the coach's fault. I agree. Second of all, one of the most important people in this conversation about whether it gets Simmons takes in all the coaching and gets better because of it, I think might be Simmons' father. Could be. I mean, he's a former player. Um, knows Brett. Knows Brett. Very well. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, the, the kid seems very polite and nice and well-spoken. And, um, yeah, I, you I, know. I'm not suggesting it has an attitude problem. It's just a matter of, like, some people don't have, like. You got to have it's some. Kinda the, yeah. the thing that Sam, the thing that people say Sam Bradford doesn't have. Right. You know, it, whatever that is. Right. You know, that just that, like, blase kind of, like. You know, like some people, and again, we're not talking about whether, I don't think there's any chance Ben Simmons is a complete bust. You know, I think that he'll right. always, it, it's a matter of whether he can be that transcendent player that takes them to a championship. He just is not, like LeBron was that coming out of high school. Right. You know, I'm trying to think of other No, but I mean, but, that's true. Like they made a 17 game jump. The Cavaliers have won 17 games the year. They got the number one pick. They draft LeBron. They won 34, 35 games the following year. And it was like, okay, like this is the guy, like here it is. You know, he's everything everybody thought he was going to be right away um, to take that dog meat franchise and and you know eventually get them where he got them. You know, last week. Like, how good do you want to be? I would hope. I would hope. Look, I think I think Simmons is going to be very good in the NBA. But I would hope that folks in this town don't expect that kind of jump from him right out of the gate because it's not to kill the guy that he's not as good as LeBron. It's not to kill anybody that they're not as good as LeBron. That doesn't happen very right. very often. So I hope, I'd look, I think the Sixers are going to be better this year. It will not help if they sign Harrison Barnes necessarily, but I think they're going to be better this year. But I hope that people are not going to crush Ben Simmons if he does not two seconds after he first takes the floor, puts the team on his back a la LeBron and Wins no, I don't think anybody comes into the league anymore with that with those kinds of expectations. I think I think the better comparison might be Julio Okafor, in that it it is well known around that team and even amongst that, that Okafor, the phrase that gets used is hasn't quite learned yet how hard he has to work in the NBA, which is to say that you know everything has come relatively easy to Okafor throughout his life and particularly his basketball career, like. You're a great scorer in high school. You go to Duke and you win the national championship. You get the number three overall pick and you come into the league and kind of rolling out of bed, you average 17 and seven. And, you know, to, to use him as a comparison to Simmons, we all kind of assume, like, and we've talked about this, and I think it's fair to ask this, like, okay, you're Ben Simmons. Like, why do you choose LSU? And then you kind of, it seems like you go through the motions of LSU and LSU only goes 19 and 14 and does make the NCAA tournament. So what does that say about Ben Simmons? Well, it is possible, and those questions are all fair, but it is possible that now that Ben Simmons has gone through that year, that he'll say to himself, well, I don't want to go through a year like that again, and I will do whatever I have to do to make sure I don't go through a year like that again. Julio before never had a year like that. Now, maybe he just had one where the team is lousy and he's, you know, being immature off the court and... You know, now there are trade rumors and maybe he kicks in into gear now. But, you know, there are two sides of the same coin there, you know, that, that maybe Simmons looks at this and says, okay, I'm free of LSU now. I had a bad experience and I'm ready to, to take off now. I'm where I'm supposed to be. Who knows? Yeah, I agree. I don't know the kid. You know, I just, that's, it, it's, it's, uh, 
it, it's going to be a fascinating team just because of, of all of the questions that go with all of the potential that they have. I mean, no team in the NBA probably has more potential from now moving forward. Right. You know, that's um, right. But no, but you know, there's, there's a chance that there's a chance that, you know, they never, they never even reach 500 with this crop of guys. You right. know I mean? Yeah. That's, that's, but I also think there's an equal chance. I literally, if they get a point guard, the East is so bad that there is a chance that they make the playoffs next year. Depends on who that point guard is. I mean, I think. Well, but even that's unknown because it's going to be interesting to see what kind of what kind of offense Brett Brown runs. I mean, right. maybe you don't need. I mean, it, it indicts the East. Don't get what me I, wrong. Yeah. Like, do you but, need a point guard? I mean, maybe Ben Simmons is is your primary ball handler, a la LeBron. Well, Brett Brett insisted draft night that he would not do that. Okay. At least not initially. Um, that you know he would, you know he's like I you know point guard is sacrosanct. It's the toughest position in the league. I'm not gonna put that kind of responsibility on his shoulders, which probably explains why they tried so hard to get a point guard, um, you know, on draft night. But they still could do that. And But Murph's point is well taken. Like, what team are you going to have? Like, you know, and, and what team is going to be successful in the NBA to come? You know, there was a whole lot made about the Warriors' ability to shoot threes and make threes, and it, they are the most enjoyable team in the league to watch. And the sheer arithmetic of what they do because they have Curry and Thompson enables them to play in a way that maybe no other team in the history of the league could play. Tell you what, though, in Game 7 they didn't go in. But, but that's the point is that, okay, well, what is the next iteration of the league, of the, of the five players on the floor that are going to be most successful? And the, the Cavaliers were long and they were athletic and they were smart and they, were, they had LeBron James, obviously. So if you're the Sixers, like... Do you have Ben Simmons and Nerlens Noel and Joel Embiid, assuming he's on the court, and a couple other guys who are like, if Sarge comes over, you know, six eight, six nine, who are able to defend the perimeter and rebound at the same time in a way that few teams can, and then you're also able to run the floor. You know, that's why I think no, you know, most people think Noel is so much more valuable than Okafor. Is that, you know. When Kyrie Irving hits that three pointer to win Game Seven, he's got six foot two Steph Curry in his face. Imagine seven foot Nerlens Noel in his face. You know, does he necessarily make that shot? So I think that's something that the Sixers have to figure out: is what kind of team are you going to be? Are you going to try to copy what everybody else has done, or can you take what you have on the roster now and form something that might be a little innovative, a little different, um, that can counteract all these you know three point shooters that the league seems to be heading towards? I don't know. I'm just gonna keep saying that. I don't know. Yeah, it may, yeah, it'll be interesting. I have no, I have literally nothing more to add. Yeah, I think uh, the last thing to say is uh, we'll see you next week. Shortest podcast we've done in a while. That's okay. It's not bad. It's quality, not quantity, baby. It's still getting hot in here. Yep. All right. All right. Talk to you next week.